Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Uh, and today we have Jeremy Carl from the Claremont Institute on. And I'm actually I'm really excited to discuss everything having to do with the border. We're going to talk about the recent events in Texas, both legally and politically, what that those mean. We're going to talk about um, how this issue has become prominent politically. And we're going to talk about this latest border bill, um, this disaster of a bill coming out of the Senate. And we're just going to talk all things border. Uh, and, and I hope that it'll be an informative uh, episode for people because I know that, especially for me, like this required going back through old Supreme Court cases. This required um, like a lot of, of actual and, and um, sort of reminding myself of, of a lot of the structure around immigration. And I know Jeremy, it's, it's required a lot from him to, to find some of the provisions of this bill and, and, and uh, tease them out. So I, I hope it'll be informative for everybody. But uh, welcome, Jeremy Carl, to High Noon. Thanks so much for having me, and it's a pleasure to be on. Great. So let's let's start. Let's actually kind of start backwards. Let's start um, with the most recent development, which is this bill coming out of the Senate. Um, we had a lot of rumors about it swirling. There was immediate pushback from the GOP base that was felt um, directly through the way that the Speaker of the House um said he declared it dead on arrival. But now in the last 24 hours, we actually have the text of this bill. So what are some of the provisions in here? Do you think the backlash was warranted ahead of time or was it based on some things that aren't didn't end up being in the bill? Well, I think it's totally warranted. I mean, let's leave aside the the sort of infamous 5,000 per day kind of number that's been tossed around. I know, by the way, that doesn't uh, necessarily include minors and you know, people from some countries that are pretty significant are excluded. But but if you, you get in, the, the more you kind of look into this, the more even the few good provisions sort of have an out where the president or secretary can kind of say, oh, well, but, you know, the emergency, you know, I'm declaring an emergency and I'm going to let all these people in anyway. Or it does uh, kind of really sneaky things like that that are kind of obscure unless you're a policy nerd but are really significant, like moving uh, border uh, disputes from the Fifth Circuit, which is a pretty conservative circuit where they would typically be judged to everything moving to the liberal D.C. circuit in terms of how this law is going to be interpreted. So that would be kind of one thing. Um, it appears, although it doesn't go out of its way, again, to, to kind of advertise this in 48-point type, to uh, instantiate the Flores decision kind of as, as almost a matter of, of, of law. Uh, the Flores was a decision was a consent decree that was really dubiously maintained, um, originally put in about 30 years ago. And basically, to make a long story short, it's why we have kids kids in cages, um, uh, because it essentially made it um, you had to treat uh, children differently under the Flores consent decree, and uh, because of that you were sort of letting uh, some people go and some others and you, you inevitably split up families. So there's all sorts of, of bad stuff in here. I mean, Mike Lee has a list of 12 horribles. Uh, maybe I should flag a few of those that are just, um, yeah, li limited duration on any of the sanctions. Um, oh yeah. 2.3 billion for these NGOs that honestly, you know, we should be prosecuting rather than uh, these are kind of the resettlement NGOs. Um, rather than giving them $2.3 billion. Uh, it extends catch and release. It makes work permits illegally available. It gives work permits to the kids of H-1Bs. 
there's not really any de deportation requirements. And, and I think you know, we talked about this a little bit on a, a previous podcast, but it is, I think you put it nicely. It really codifies a lot of the bad stuff that's going on under Biden already in exchange for giving us a few crumbs at the table in terms of, oh, well, maybe we'll stop some of this other bad stuff. But it's just, you can't do a good deal with people who are negotiating in bad faith. The Biden administration has no interest in closing the border. And therefore, it's just a mystery to me that we would ever sit down with these guys at all. Um, what about that 5,000 person provision? So um, I, I read that the final version of this in the bill essentially allows the president to completely shut down the border at, once that threshold is reached. That threshold is about, I think I, I did back of the envelope, it's 1.8 million uh, illegal migrants right. per year. So under a four-year term of a presidency, you're talking about New York City, uh, a new, right. an entire New York City of migrants before the president is, quote unquote, supposed to shut down the border. Right. How does that mechanism work? Uh, and, and what, like, I yeah, and I, I have not gotten deeply into that. Everybody sort of fixated on that. And to me, I was more fixated on the kind of fine print um, things that this was like the big thing that sort of jumped out at people. I do know that the the lead Democratic um, negotiator on the bill, uh, Senator Murphy from Connecticut, um, kind of went out of his way in his tweet thread about the bill to basically say the border stays open at all times. And in fact, uh, when Lee and Cruz and some of the other folks and Ron Johnson were doing their press conference today where they were talking about this bill. They had that uh, tweet kind of from from Murphy um, kind of in in bold, bold uh, 58 point uh, type. Um, so my understanding is um, that what happens after that is the, it doesn't really shut. It's just that everybody has to go through regular border crossings and there's a sort of different process that um, gets in place. But um you know, it's bad any way you want to look at it and whether, you know, whatever your interpretation of of this is, because really that number should ultimately be zero. So um, let's talk about the the venue change. So this is an attempt to route a lot of any squabbles and we'll get to, I think, the very important um, standoff in Texas between state yeah. power uh, and federal power on the border. But uh, part of this bill would route disagreements like that uh, through the D.C. Circuit of Appeals rather than through the Fifth Circuit or if they were, you know, in, in a different state, right, it, through the the natural appellate court for that state. Right. Um, a lot of the states that we're bringing this are red states. Now, some of them, unfortunately, yeah. are stuck under the Ninth Circuit with California, but but others of them have more friendly venues in which to bring those complaints uh, to federal court. Um, why do you think this is in here? Do you think it's a direct response to what's going on in Texas? I wonder when this when this little provision was slid in. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. There's so many things that we don't know about this bill. Um, Langford was just like, this is a, a former camp director, basically. And he just, he'd never done a big bipartisan negotiation. There's so much we don't know because this was opaque. Um, Mike Lee, who's been one of the biggest critics of the, the this Senate bill kind of got on Twitter today and put out like a, a sort of nice thing, basically saying, oh, Langford's a really nice guy. And he just kind of got rolled here by McConnell. I mean, he said that in so many words. Um, it would be fascinating to know who the real players behind this were. I think really kind of the big story almost to me before you even get into the provisions 
is why we were even sitting down and doing this at all, not just because it's a bad faith negotiation, but because the way that this was sold to a grumbling but potentially accepting base at the beginning is we had a really good bill that passed the House called HR2 that was going to crack down on a lot of asylum things. Basically, it is the legislative things that would um, improve the border. And what we were told we were getting is, okay, you're going to get something that's HR2 or really, really close to it. And in exchange, you're going to give 60 billion to Ukraine or whatever, you know, that number. I don't think they floated that number, but some large amount of money. And for folks like me who are very unenthusiastic about giving money to Ukraine, like I didn't love that, but I could like I could swallow hard and deal with it if we got real border reform. But instead, McConnell seemed to think that he could sell us an asylum bill that we certainly didn't want in exchange for a Ukraine bill. That we didn't want. I mean, the Ukraine aid is sitting at 35% right now in the most recent, I think, Gallup poll of GOP voters. So I, there's just a, a there's a reality distortion field around this entire negotiation process that just it doesn't make sense to me. And I was talking on background, as I mentioned to you earlier, off off uh, line with a pretty senior uh, sort of regime media journalist trying to explain this. Um, the, just yesterday, and I couldn't really give him a good answer. I mean, other than Trump wants uh, McConnell's trying to undermine Trump, maybe he is. Maybe it's just that simple. Um, certainly, he's done that effectively. Um, <clears throat> but why anyone else in the GOP would go along for that ride is it's a mystery to me. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that I think, even though it looks like we've put a stake in this ha- heart of this vampire, there's a lot of kind of things around how we got here that we still need a lot more information on. Yeah, so let's talk about the politics then a bit. So um, the background of this, of course, is that Joe Biden doesn't actually need any additional authority to unwind the changes that he made to the Trump policy. That being said, to give the the sort of uh, moderate Republicans their due, right, even under the Trump administration, there simply aren't current legislative tools to actually close the border. Um, there, There is more money for Border Patrol necessary that's in this right. bill. There are revisions to the asylum law that are necessary. Some vague backwards type of thing, uh, reform is being made in this bill, right? But there are legislative changes that have to be made um, if, if one was really, you know, attempting to functionally stem the tide across the border. But what what is obvious because it's it's in our in our uh, just in the last few years we've seen uh, the change that it makes uh, between an administration that is trying to stem illegal activity on the border and using all of the tools that that administration has even if there are still some legislative limitations to that versus an administration under Biden who has had which has had absolutely no interest right um in right. fact is actively suing <laughs> <laughs> to to open the border, going right. down there, cutting razor wire that that the state of right. Texas right is is putting up, um, very clearly has no interest in in preventing any substantial number of the migrants who are crossing the border. And we've seen the world respond to that. We've seen the uh, massive, massive uptick in people crossing the border because we've essentially invited them in. Um, so what? Why? I guess. Um, you say you don't really understand why they would go into these negotiations. I, I, I think they do think that they're getting a kind of quote unquote comprehensive immigration reform. Um, and I think the reason it seems so 
out of touch to that, that reality. I like that phrase you use reality distortion field around this is there really isn't the sense of how big a crisis this has become, but even when people acknowledge that it's a crisis right now, they don't seem to understand yeah. that this is an issue that has been at crisis levels for border states and for the Republican base for decades. And so yeah. a kind of blessing of the currently bad situation um, is not an acceptable solution to people who have been complaining about this for decades, not just right. since migrants were sent to New York City. Right. And I think part of it, Inez, and I, I kind of like the way you sort of bifurcated it, because I think it's it's important. I mean, our our communication strategy, partially because of this crazy bill, continues to be wrong, because first we put this out, and then the people who wanted to kill it, but realized that it was a little bit of a problem because we had McConnell seemingly behind it, we're sort of saying, you know, we don't actually need any legislation. We just need Biden to rescind his executive orders. And even folks like Stephen Miller, who's, I mean, who's kind of like almost a gold standard on this, I think has put, but I think he's uh, on these issues, but he's pushed this, I think a little bit too hard in that it is absolutely true that if Biden wanted to shut the border, he could simply do what I think Stephen Miller said was the one sentence uh, EO that says all of Trump's border policies are reinstated. He could do that. And then if he were actually trying to shut the border as opposed to fighting against uh, shutting the border as he did under Trump, you'd get illegal immigration down to lower than we had it even under Trump. That would take it away from being a huge crisis. And so far, so good. That is the part that's right that says that the level of crisis we're seeing now does not require legislation to ameliorate. But we still want to get that number much closer to zero. And that's where I think we failed in our communications, because we do actually still need legislation that actually will close the border, that will make these incredibly dubious asylum claims essentially much, much harder to do, et cetera, et cetera. And even some of that kind of snuck in in a backhanded way to this bill. But HR2 was a much better bill to do that. So it's really to get it away from a huge crisis mode, we need to just have Biden go back to doing what Trump's doing. But then on top of that, if we really want to get control of the border, we've got to we've got to do something like HR2. And then ultimately, I think we need to to withdraw from these asylum conventions and stop having our uh, border ultimately justiciable by some of these dubious treaties that have long since outlived their usefulness that, that made sense in the, the Cold War and World War II, but but don't really make sense today. Yeah, I mean, so it seems like it's been very, uh, it's been intractable in a way that uh, really does demonstrate the fact that there aren't, until quite recently, um, there really haven't been, and arguably not now, really haven't been two sides to this question, right? Um, there was a, a a political class agreement, right, where Republicans wanted, you know, uh, economic migration. Uh, because they thought it was good for the economy uh, and it was definitely good for the corporations, which, which at that time they had a, a much closer relationship with, which I don't even think is necessarily illegitimate. I mean, the left has always had a very close relationship with labor, with a capital L. Um, the right has had a, a close relationship politically with corporations and big business. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's bad. It depends. Uh, what's good for business is not always good for the country, nor is it usually bad for the country. So I think it, it is very era dependent, in my opinion, about how 
positive or negative for the country that relationship has been. But regardless of, of what you think about that relationship, it's definitely different between the Republican Party today than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, sure. where you did have this very uh, strong consensus completely not shared by the American people in poll after poll, in long, you know, long-term poll after long-term poll that, you know, tracks uh, sentiment across decades, right? We tend to be the most reliable kind of polling where it's not just a snap poll about an election. It's, you know, how do you feel about this issue over time, over decades? Um, right. We've seen over and over again that immigration and problems with immigration, uh, not even exclusively tied to illegal immigration, but particularly illegal immigration, have been a concern, not just for voters on the right, but voters in the middle um, and some voters on the left for decade after decade. And yet from basically 1990 until Donald Trump, we had a consensus of both parties that, you know, Republicans wanted a little more law and order. Repub Democrats were definitely pushing the issue more from the emotional side and empathy of bringing, you know, sort of alleviating the suffering of the world. Um, but but more or less both agreed that this was, if anything, a, a sort of a problem to be managed, but ultimately that the consequences of millions of people coming into the United States were, were going to be good. And that was totally out of step with not just the, the Republican base, but like the American people. How did we get to a situation in which that reality distort, distorting field around this issue is so strong um, where even somebody, <laughs> even even the Republicans in Congress are totally shocked to find out that their base doesn't support something like this. Well, I think in, in some sense, you answered your own question, which is at the end of the day, politics is determined by elites. And the interests of elites, particularly when it comes to low-skilled immigration, are very different than the interests of the average American. Uh, the low-skilled immigration for elites, at least in the short term, and I'd actually argue in the long term, Low-skilled immigration is is bad for elites as well. But over the short term, it's like cheaper servant wages. It's uh, it's my Uber driver. It's whoever you know. That's that's kind of the advantage, and that's the world. And it's actually interesting when they do public survey data on immigration. Elites, financially, et cetera, tend to be much much more um, open and enthusiastic about low-skilled immigration. But when you ask them about high-skilled immigration, i.e., the sorts of people who might compete with them for a job at McKinsey or some law firm or something like that, then they are noticeably more mixed. But we have this, I mean, it goes back to the earliest days when we opened up our borders effectively with the Hart Cellar um, legislation in, in 1965. Even on the eve of that, when Gallup was doing surveys about immigration, it was sort of two to one against a sort of Hart Cellar type solution. And I would further in, uh, further add to that, that there's kind of an element of boiling the frog slowly here. And that if you were to go back to 1965 and say, okay, passing this bill gives you 2024 demographics, are you for that? You know, Hartzeller would have pulled at 2% and not 30% or whatever it did. But but we've continued to have, as, as I called it, this reality distortion field. Um, but the left, left didn't get completely crazy on this for some time. If you go back to the Jordan Commission, which was a 1990s bipartisan immigration commission set up by, by President Clinton and chaired by Barbara Jordan, the liberal, lesbian, African-American Democrat who was kind of an icon of the left, um, they 
had all sorts of recommendations in what we should do for immigration that my friends at the Center for Immigration Studies, which are kind of probably the most prominent right-wing immigration think tank in the United States, they're like, we love the Jordan Commission. So it's really one of these things where we've had, uh, as the left political scientists like to say, we've had asymmetric polarization. So um, the the right has kind of maintained some degree of steadiness on this issue. And if anything, they've they've liberalized from the 1960s. But the left has just gone completely off the deep end, no borders, no countries. It's all John Lennon's Imagine song. And this is a crazy way to run America. I mean, it's it's certainly true that, uh, you know, even as recently as like 2012, right, you have Bernie Sanders accusing sure. open borders as a Koch brothers policy, right? right. Uh, by which he meant a libertarian right policy. Right. Um, and there used to be much more strong critique. Joe Biden himself was, of right. course, in favor of strong enforcement. There, there are kind of two parallel views here. What you can easily imagine, and I think there are a large chunk of Americans in that camp, people who would be okay with relatively large scale immigration if it were more orderly. So in other words, there's the, the law and order aspect right. of, of the border disaster. And then there is a fairly large, a much larger, let's say this, much larger than their political representation section of, of the American public that really would like to see a slowdown or a pause totally even on legal immigration um, because they think that this is an unsustainable, like culturally unsustainable level yeah. of immigration. And that's a view that's given almost no political representation in our system. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I it's, know because I have that view <laughs> and have yeah. expressed it, and uh, I know how little representation it has. Although it has more. It's over not, the last it's not three a years. small view. I mean, I'm I'm not sure that I'm in agreement with that view, but it's not yeah. like a, a unusual view in terms of the polling. Like there, there's pretty strong no. support. What is it? It's like eighty percent of Americans either think the level current level of legal immigration is just right or right. too high, right? right? Almost nobody thinks that it's too low. Um, in, in any case, um, there, there is also this new strain. And I think where you're, you're putting your finger on where the like, so where the left got really crazy on this, um, is this strain and, and people say it quite openly now, they, they really do believe that in the same way that in the domestic context, people who ha are, you know, have power, have wealth, they've acquired it illegitimately by discriminating against and taking the wealth from, from people domestically. They believe that on a global scale as well. They believe that the fact that the, that Americans represent 4% of the world's population and yet, you know, whatever it is, 26 or 30% of the world's wealth, like we could have only acquired that wealth through injustice and theft. Um, and therefore we sort of owe it to the world to redistribute the blessings of, of uh, being born in America. And I, I, I do think that's probably responsible for this particular radicalization of the yeah. left on that issue. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because in my, my book that I have uh, coming out in April, which you can order on Amazon if you're interested, but um, uh, I kind of look at a broader set of, of issues of which one is immigration, but, but around this. And I argue effectively that wealth redistribution through reparations, through all sorts of other things, is really the fundamental straw that stirs the drink for lots of these policies. Um, because you have to look at like, why why is this all happening? It's not um, Athena springing fully armored out of Zeus's head just unexpectedly. Um, I mean, there's, there's sort of justifications 
for why this is there. There are political actors who are benefiting. And ultimately, I think that that all of this policy is at the end of the day, um, not all of it, but but um, a lot of it is ultimately setting up a justification for wealth expropriation of various types in various ways and in various levels of overtness, depending on what the demographics of the country or a region or a state or a city are at any given time. Um, and it's sort of a thing where, as the science fiction writer uh, William Gibson said, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. Uh, so I think a lot of the really bad things that we're going to see as the result of immigration policy in the US, they're already here, but they're just not evenly distributed. Where I am in Montana, we have less problems. I think if you're back where uh, we both spent some time in uh, the Bay Area of California, or in Los Angeles, or place like that, or New York City, where you are now, uh, you see a lot of these problems a little bit more front and centered. Well, there is this, uh, you know, um, if I were giving out awards for political gambit of the year, right? Uh, you can see the highs and lows of of Republican, uh, po just purely politically, of Republicans on this issue. I think um, the the high being, I don't know that I've ever seen a more effective shift on this issue of immigration in the whatever time that I've been spending paying attention at all to uh, to political issues than the shift that has been produced by sending migrants to blue centers and blue cities. Um, it's been unbelievably effective because this is something where, that you can ignore. As you say, it's unevenly distributed. You can ignore if it's not in your backyard. And maybe your priors are more liberal on this issue, right? Maybe right. like in theory, you're totally fine with with untrammeled immigration into the United States. Yeah. Um, you're not worried about the political consequences. Perhaps you're a Democrat. Uh, but everybody now sees the problems, both the, the crime problems, the cultural problems, just the, the sheer resource problems, right? We had recently right. in New York City, a school that had to go all remote because they had, they put, I mean, they put migrants in, the school, they were just basically housing them in the school building. And as horrible as that is, like, you can understand why that happened, because where do you put these people? And New York, sure. unlike, uh, fortunately, New York, unlike Washington, D.C. and and uh, San Francisco and many other blue cities, does not allow camping on the right. street. So, like, where are these people going to go, right? Uh, there, there's a limited number, like, social services available for these people, and there's simply too many of them. Yeah. But, of course, that's been the case for Laredo, Texas, for decades, right? right. And and uh, these are all the same people who are pointing the fingers at Texans and Arizonans and everyone complaining about the, the border crisis and saying the only reason you could have to object to this is you just don't like brown people, right? Like, you're right. a racist, Um and now I do think it's been very successful and now it's self-perpetuating because border right. migrants at the border have heard about the cushy deal that you get in New York city and being put up in, in um, the Roosevelt hotel. And they're, they're saying on the border when they get their free flight anywhere and they're, Hey, in New York city, you get a, a pre prepaid credit card, you get somewhere to sleep, you get food, go to Roosevelt hotel in Manhattan. And so it's self-perpetuating now where, Blue cities are actually feeling the consequences of the sanctuary policies. I think it's just been enormously politically successful. Yeah. I mean, even for me, I I've been pushing for this for years, but I would have never dreamed that it would have been so politically successful as it was. I mean, I sort of felt like they would kind of figure out a way, especially in a city like New York, which is huge and has tons of resources, they'd sort of figure out a way 
to handle the surge better. But in fact, it's been totally incapacitating. And as you note, in Laredo, in Eagle Pass, in uh, California border communities, whatever, this sort of thing has been going on for decades. But nobody really cares. I mean, that's the bottom line is elites don't live in those places. And so nobody really cares. I mean, I care because they're Americans. But um, the reality is the people who are making policy in our government don't really care about those people down in Laredo. And so you wind up in the sorts of situations you have. And that's why I actually thought the best version of that, which was also simultaneously the one that absolutely made the left freak out the most, was when Ron DeSantis flew the, the folks to Martha's Vineyard. And I actually think we ought to be doubling down on that. Because even in New York, if you're at the kind of elite level or San Francisco, you can kind of buy your way out of contact with the reality you're creating. But if you go to their little vacation communities and you go bring them to the Hamptons and you bring them to Martha's Vineyard and you bring them to Malibu and you say, hey, guess what? Other Americans are dealing with that. And you're talking all the time about how much you love uh, you know, to be a sanctuary city, et cetera. Now you're going to deal with some of it. I think you have to give the liberals absolutely nowhere to hide on, on this issue. So in some sense, I do see the fact that this border compromise bill happened at all as a indication of a success in in this uh, regard, right? I don't think the left would be willing to give anything on this issue, uh, but for the fact that you have blue city governors like Mayor Adams, or, I mean, blue, sorry, blue city mayors like Mayor Adams um, coming out and even publicly criticizing his own party over this. Of course, the solution that He's going to put forward is, well, can, the federal government has to pay for it, right? And I, I, I do think that you'll probably see pressure build for some kind of federal bailout of, of blue states and blue cities uh, with regard to the costs um, and the social service costs of, of the migration crisis. Um, but the fact that we're talking about it at all is both a function of the level of crisis at the border, but I think also a function of this successful political gambit to actually make those the effects of that crisis felt uh, in a more, if it left everything, in a more evenly distributed way yeah. uh, across the United States. Yeah, and I think you're right that the Democrats would never have picked this up other than the fact that it really has become a salient issue for their constituents uh, in urban America as well. And having said that, I mean, I think Chris Murphy ran rings as the Democratic negotiator, along with Cinema, who I, I still consider a Democrat, even though she's nominally an independent. But I think they ran rings around poor James Langford and McConnell in terms of this bill. And I think they were incredibly successful and put up a huge point on the board for their team. Having said that, I think they could have been even more successful and slightly more devious had the bill not been so obnoxiously bad from a perspective of folks like me who are GOP immigration hawks. In other words, there's so much bad stuff in this bill. There's so many exceptions even to the few good things in the bill that it is really easy for people like me to just read the 15 worst things and start freaking out on Twitter and saying, absolutely no way should we do this, which is correct. I mean, we weren't just you know reacting out of a, a gut instinct. You just look at this and like, no, you know, we're not going to do that. Had they been slightly more devious I think they would have made a somewhat less obnoxious bill and there's a decent chance that they could have forced it down our throats in a way that would have been a big long-term win for them because it would have codified a number of the bad policies that uh, have effectively happened under Biden 
So it was a win for the Democrats, but in some respects, I think they got a little bit greedy and reduced the ultimate size of the win they might have. Because also now, if we get Trump, which I hope we do, obviously, um, I think the game could change very, very dramatically in the other direction. So at least that's my hope. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the key phrase in what you just said is people like me. So I, I actually think this has been a very successful political move for the Democratic Party because this issue has been um, so cleverly uh, distributed so that it actually hurts blue constituencies as well as red ones. Um, they were really feeling the pressure on this issue. Um, and now they have an answer for it for people who are not, quote unquote, like you, Jeremy Carl, right? right? Um, right. Who aren't going to read the provisions of this bill. Uh, they're just going to say, well, the, the Republicans want it as an election issue. They don't really want to solve the problem. Right. It's transigent Republicans who are are the issue. Um, and I think there's going to probably be, sadly, I think there's probably going to be a lot of people that buy that. I think it's going to buy them a little breathing room on this issue that they... Yeah had not had it, if the Republicans had just refused to negotiate with them. Right. And that's why I think ultimately this has to be a career ending move for Mitch McConnell in terms of his leadership of the caucus, because it was so obvious this freight train was running toward us several weeks back. I actually was with a United States Senator, spent some time talking to him about this bill. Um, I mean, obviously we did not have the exact text, but what it leaked out, I which turned out to be pretty, pretty accurate. Um, and I just said, I don't get this. Basically, this is a freight train coming to us. I don't understand why we engage at all. It's going to be a political and policy disaster. It's a process disaster. And that's, in fact, exactly what it turned out to be. Um, so uh, I think this level of error, just we, we need new leadership. And I don't think it can even be one of McConnell's deputies who are all the sort of Johns that get talked about a lot, particularly uh, Cornyn and... Uh, and uh, Thune, but also to a lesser extent, Barrasso. Um, we're just going to have more of the same. What we need is um, uh, a new leadership in the Senate. It's not going to come. Look, I'd love it if it was Ted Cruz and Mike Lee. I get that we don't have the votes for that type of leadership in the Senate, but it's got to be somebody who is broadly acceptable to the dissidents in our caucus, who are about 10 or 15 right now, uh, depending on you know, how many uh, the votes that you had for Rick Scott against McConnell, plus some others who probably just didn't love Scott, but still don't like McConnell. But you've got, you've got to have somebody who's at least acceptable to those people. And also somebody who's, who's touched grass and knows where our base is and would never make a mistake like that. Um, so well, here, um, I think there, there is a really, I think there is a really legitimate critique to be made of Trump. So um, some people like Ann Coulter, for example, have critiqued his actual administrative failures to enforce what he could as, without getting new legislation. I think those critiques are sort of overblown. I, I think the Trump administration did do about as good. I mean, you can always like armchair quarterback this particular yeah. move or that particular move, but I think overall they very effectively used the limited tool set that they had administratively. And they had some success in actually restoring yeah. some level of law and order on the border. Um, but where I do think the critiques are really fair is in prioritizing political capital. Um, Trump came into office in 2016 with a Republican House and Senate. If I'm not mistaken. I'm trying to remember now. I think so. Um, and his legislative achievement were tax cuts. Um, I'm not against tax cuts. I like tax cuts. I would like more tax cuts. Um, 
But ta- but Trump didn't run on tax cuts, right? right? He ran on building the wall. And you have a limited number of bites of the legislative apple. Um, if if he wanted to be a to really transform the Republican agenda in line with the the sort of realignment talk, um, he could have prioritized this kind of HR two style border control bill that sure. fixed some of those longer term issues. He could have, you know, brought his own party in line with that when when he was coming in with as much political capital as he would he ever was going to have. Right. And instead, yeah. the two the two legislative achievements of the Trump administration are tax cuts. I mean, good, but not changing the trajectory of the United States uh, off a cliff, in my opinion, yeah. uh, kind of rearranging deck chairs slightly more nicely. Um and then the second one, of course, is a, a criminal justice reform bill that I actively opposed. <laughs> um, and and I think the the mood on crime is very, very different than it was then. Uh, but I, I think that the First Step Act, it was, you know, it's not responsible for the wave of crime. It has much more to do with local um, municipality decisions, DAs refusing to enforce the law. Like it, it does have to do more with blue states and blue cities than it does with the First Step Act. That being said, it betrays an impulse that is totally wrong to my mind. Um, and I know yeah. I'm in disagreement and have been for a decade in disagreement with uh, some some folks that I otherwise tend to agree with a lot on this stuff on criminal justice reform. Yeah. Um, but in any case, like those were the two things that the Trump administration prioritized legislatively. And I think there there is a real critique to be made. He, he came into office. On, this was like the core pro- Trump promise. Right. There was make America great again. And the way we're going to do that is build a big, beautiful wall. Yeah. Make Mexico pay for it. And I wouldn't have complained if Mexico didn't pay for it. Okay. I just, but he didn't do that. Right. Um, And he didn't prioritize that uh, in terms of his legislative achievements. No, I think that's very accurate in all respects. And I, by the way, completely agree with you on the criminal justice reform bill. Um, I think that uh, administratively, and I know a lot of fair number of the details that went into that and a lot of the personnel involved, I think they, you can always Monday morning quarterback it, but they really did a lot of good things given what they had to do. And certainly they made some mistakes, but they they were certainly trying as hard as they could to move things in the right direction. Legislatively, I think it's totally fair to make that critique that we were not ready, that we wasted our political capital that we had to spend there, that we did not build the wall. Um, and I think, and I think you've probably made this point more broadly, and I certainly agree with this point myself. The Democrats, in general, are great at spending political capital, even though they understand that that means they may lose a lot of seats in, a, in the short term. But you get a big long-term win. Obamacare is the kind of classic example of this to me on the Democratic side, where they took a huge hit, and guess what? Obamacare ain't going anywhere, right? So uh, to me, that's a good trade. Um, the Republicans are instead consistently engaged in this kind of kabuki theater, fake politics where we don't actually win. And on, and I remember saying this when the, the kind of uh, Roe v. Wade overturning went down, we were like the dog who caught the car and we were so unprepared to actually win on an issue of substance that we didn't have any of our step two and three planned about, okay, well, now you've got this open legislative environment. How do you make sure that what you're doing is politically smart and sustainable? And we were just caught completely flat-footed by the Democrats. 
Um, and I think that's the same thing. You're, you're, you know, without wandering too much afield from our subject, you're seeing that same thing with immigration, where we just we we're caught flat-footed. I'm hopeful things will actually be better in a Trump two term, because I think if we actually do get Trump two, the system will have been thrown so far back on its heels, and Trump not having to worry about re-election will be willing to be much more aggressive and with a much more experienced team that he'll have that we might actually get some much more dramatic changes. But for the first term, we definitely had some lost opportunities. Um, it would be, well, first to close this current political subject, uh, I always like to, to quote uh, Rachel Bovard, who's been on this podcast and a friend of mine, I'm sure of yours too. Um, and I think she, she described it about as well as I have ever heard anyone describe it, which is, you know, political power um, is not a trophy uh, for to be polished on a shelf. You know, political yeah. capital is meant to be used. And, and sometimes it really does seem uh, with the Republican establishment that they win elections to win elections. Like they, yeah. they win elections to maintain power, uh, right. but they don't actually use the power uh, that they're granted by elections. That's not the purpose of political power. It's, it's to right. be used. And yes, sometimes you are, uh, maybe there's a backlash against something that you do and and uh, maybe you get thrown out, but at least you accomplish something uh, during your term in power where it seems like this very um, sort of depressing and, and not very useful cycle of just winning elections to maintain power in order to win more elections, in order to maintain power. And that's yeah. not... That's not the right way that a, a, I realize this sounds very quaint, but a, a, a representative democracy should function. No. Um, go ahead. If you have any more. No, no, no. I just, I, I obviously completely agree with that. And I don't think it's just sort of, oh, we're being idealistic and that's not the way that politics work. That is the way that politics works for the Democrats, right? It's not that we're expecting them to constantly fall on their sword at every little small policy preference we have at the expense of their legislative majority. But they actually have to care enough, at least about some elements of their underlying agenda, that they are willing to potentially risk some political capital to push those elements of their agenda forward. The left has consistently proven they're willing to do that, and the right has proven consistently that they are not willing to do that. So I, I don't want to let you go without uh, doing a little bit about the other big border fight, which is the one that's going on between the states and the federal government. Um, Can you, a few weeks, since uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, we had an update, we had this injunction um, from the Supreme court, including uh, crossover votes from uh, John Roberts and Amy Coney Barrett on a very limited injunction could be for a lot of reasons. I think you and I maybe um, disagree a little bit about the like the sort of import of that injunction, but slapping down mm-hmm. an injunction from the Fifth Circuit that would have required the Biden administration um, not to cut razor wire um, on, the, on the Texas border, which is, by the way, on private property. Um, then we had this response from Governor Abbott saying, full steam ahead, making two constitutional arguments, one about the meaning of the, the word invasion mm-hmm. um, and, and the states having independent power to repel an invasion, and two, uh, pointing to a Scalia dissent in in Arizona against the United States, saying that the the states still have concurrent sovereignty um, and that a key element of sovereignty of the states that they still retain in in the constitutional compact, right, is is to uh, expel uh, people who are not legally supposed to be there. And, And so there's these two constitutional arguments. He essentially says, we're staying the course. Um, there's this explosion in the media, um, which 
really deeply mischaracterizes legally what's going on uh, as a defiance of a Supreme Court order. There's no part of the Supreme Court order. Uh, there's no legal order against Texas. They can continue to put as much razor wire uh, up as they would like. Uh, the only uh, injunction, the only difference legally is that the federal government, the Biden administration, is not permitted from clipping it when the Border Patrol decides it wants to go through. Um, so that's the current state of things. But then you had all these states come in, I think 25 at last count. How many? It's a lot. It's almost all the red states. 25. 25. I think it was every, even New Hampshire and some of the places you might have thought with Republican governors might have been a little squishy. I think everybody came in. Yeah. So Yunkin in Virginia. So even like moderate yeah. Republican states um, all coming in and supporting Texas in this, uh, allowing and, and um, permitting some of them saying that they will be sending National Guard troops to the border to help Texas in its effort to enforce uh, its national border, its state border along the national border, I should say. Yeah. Um, so first of all, like, where do you think this is, this is headed? Um, I mean, we seem to have like some real pushback from the state, some real small F federalist pushback. Um, where do you think this battle is going both legally and then uh, also politically? What does it mean that it, even moderate Republican governors, it's kind of like the opposite as the federal right. battle where like, there's such a strong moderate caucus that essentially uh, seems to be almost a fifth column on the issue federally. And then on the state level, it seems almost the opposite, where even moderate blue state Republican governors are like, oh, no, like, I feel comfortable going all in on right. this, on this fight. Right. Well, I think there's there's a couple things going on. And one is you touched on the mischaracterization of the legal arguments. And I would say almost that this is it's a little bit of when the facts and the legend um conflict print the legend and i think the legend here is actually more important than the underlying facts people are excited and i think it tells us something more about our political moment there's so many people on the right who are excited because they thought that we were defying a supreme court order i think it tells you a lot about where we are i think it also tells you a lot about where we are politically on this issue that having gotten permission biden did not decide to go in immediately with the feds and start cutting the razor wire, which he could have done. So that tells you something. I think this this thing going on with Abbott, I think part of the thing that helped bring on these moderate governors is that a Abbott himself is like fairly moderate. I mean, I don't want to to sandbag him too much, but certainly by Texas standards, he's he's not on the conservative wing of the party. But I, I'm almost seeing a little bit with him and it's increasing pronouncements, this kind of thing where, and I'm not saying that he's going to get there, just the, the potential is there a hero is sort of plucked from his own workadayness and begins to transcend who he was. And then I think Abbott's this guy who's always been, you know, sort of a moderate, solid business conservative, kind of doing his thing. He's never been loved by conservatives in Texas or immigration patriots. I mean, he's not like a Romney figure where he's an actual lib or anything like that, but he's just, he's not a guy who's going to push the envelope like Ken Paxton or, or somebody like that in down in down in Texas. Um, I think the incredible response that he got, where suddenly he became the hero of the conservative movement for doing this, seemed to sort of invigorate him. And he kept pushing. And all of a sudden he's this popular symbol of resistance to federal power. Again, even if you and I know sort of the the technical details of this may not kind of quite be how it's playing out in the media. And I'm going to be very interested. I would not. I would be surprised to see Abbott totally fold on this fight, given the acclamation 
that he has. I think he will push this as far as he can. And for people like me who feel like some instability needs to be injected into the system because the stable system is, is so corrupt. Um, I think it's a great thing. I'm incredibly optimistic about where we are on the border vis-a-vis Texas. Um, I hope we have these conflicts and I'm not actually even totally, um, I think you're much more, you've expressed a great deal of confidence in previous conversations that, um, not a great deal of confidence, but you seem optimistic that we're going to get a reversal of some of the Supreme Court uh, ruling down in Arizona that sort of took away sovereignty. I don't actually have a strong opinion on that because I haven't studied kind of the legal contours uh, carefully. But I think almost whether or not we get that, um, the Rubicon has, the toe has at least been dipped in the Rubicon. Whether we will fully cross it, we'll see. Um, But there is more grounds for being optimistic particularly because this is being led by somebody like Governor Abbott, who is not a bomb thrower and who is not going to just be as easily dismissed by more establishment voices in our party. Yeah, so I think um, we do have a a disagreement over, and either one could be right, it's just trying to read why people are enthusiastic about this. I agree with you that they are, they feel hopeful. I have read this less, I I tend to think that the typical... um, person who's happy to see, um, you know, to see the actions that Abbott is taking. I think it's much less either way about defying the Supreme Court or not. I, I think uh, the enthusiasm is simply from the issue itself and seeing yeah, yeah. Somebody, no, no, fair, fair. somebody actually do something about uh, the border that, as we've talked about in this episode, right, like the, the median view of the American voter on immigration and the border has been stifled probably at least for three decades. Yeah. Um, and so to see somebody so aggressively challenge the status quo on this issue, I don't know that people care so much about the posture vis-a-vis the Supreme Court at all. Um, so I, I don't know that it's enthusiastic. Maybe it is. Maybe it's enthusiasm for another round of nullification. I'm just, I'm just too, I'm too optimistic, but, maybe. I'm, I'm buying my own Twitter feed too much. I, um, I do think that it's both, but I think you're absolutely right. To uh, A significant portion of it is is the substance of the issue as well, not just beating so up in, on the Supreme Court. In terms of my optimism, I mean, it's not, I'm, I'm not by any means certain that this is going to go our way legally, um, but I think there's a good reason to hope that this case uh, that does limit, substantially limit the states. So if people remember, uh, if you're old enough to remember way back in 2012, uh, I know I have a lot of Zoomer listeners. So (laughs) if you were out of middle school in 2012, um, there was this this, uh, series of laws in Arizona, uh, the most famous of which was SB 1070, uh, which basically created a concurrent enforcement mechanism for illegal aliens in Arizona. So some of it was uh, money to certain um, like border uh, barriers and stuff sort of similar to the way that that Texas is uh, has been. Also, it gave essentially concurrent sovereignty and concurrent um, law for the state patrol officers to check immigration status when they've pulled people over for whatever reason. Um, and then put them in jail for being illegally in the state of Arizona. Um, so it, it, it basically duplicated the law, basically duplicated what is on the books in terms of federal law. And by the way, this is why changing the, the law to bless a lot of the, the sort of illegality of the situation under Biden on the federal level, I think would really jeopardize, 
the, the constitutionality of state action on this. Because actually, if you are contradicting federal law on immigration, um, if you if the state is directly contradicting federal law, the feds win. This is a federal sure. um, it's federal responsibility. They can, you know, for, <laughs> they can can bungle that responsibility, but you can't have 50 different state policies on national immigration. And I think that's the right constitutional posture for it. That being said, the, the question in this case was different. It was, can the states essentially reinforce what's on the books that the feds are saying, we don't have the resources to enforce that? Which, because that's that's the legal posture of all of this Biden stuff, right? Sure. They don't come out and say in court, well, we want the border to be open. Right. They say, no, we're directing our limited resources towards you know the cartels or like whatever it is. Uh, we don't have the resources to deal with these floods of migrants, so we are uh, effectively... We're, we're making the determination that that our enforcement um, resources, which are, are finite, are going to go here and not here. What the court essentially said in Arizona against the United States was, no, the federal power in immigration is uh, essentially crowds out whatever the states want to do, even if it's in concurrence with what the federal law is. Um, essentially, the states have to abide by federal enforcement priorities because they have no business weighing in on anything immigration related. This is all a federal problem and they have no business. But that 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 decision was turned out to be five to three with with Roberts switching. Um, And and interestingly, Kagan recusing because she worked on this this uh, issue under the Obama administration. Um, And so there's a lot of speculation that Roberts is kind of his want, right, switched to avoid, because otherwise we would have had this very messy decision where you have no actual opinion from the Supreme Court on this case. You would have a 4-4 split, um, and there would be no guidance coming out of the Supreme Court on this issue. Right. Um, so you have, you know, obviously the court has changed since 2012. You have these two really strong dissents on different grounds, one from Scalia, one from Thomas, either one of which, you know, you could see a majority of this court potentially adopting as the correct view on these issues. Um, right. And if if that is the case, we will see a substantial increase in the states, the border states actually being able to devote some of their own resources to this problem, which I, given the intractability that we've been discussing on the federal level and the fact that, you know, unless we see a, a big election for Republicans and they devote their political capital to, to getting this through, you know, you're, we're unlikely to see um, you know, much movement in terms of the law on the federal level about immigration, period. I think if we're entering into an era, potentially in, you know, by the time the Supreme Court gets to dig into these on the merits, these issues on the merits, I think there could be an enormous upside to having the border states essentially being able to do concurrent enforcement. I mean, we we could end up with a, a situation where the only part of the border that's open is California. Yeah. And that's acceptable. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not, not really, but but it would be better than what we have now. Yeah, I think you're totally right that that's what it could do. And I think it's also important to note, while the sort of argument of we have to prioritize our resources has always been there, it was really under Obama that this type of argument, not just with respect to immigration, but with respect to a lot of other issues, began to be used increasingly aggressively and disingenuously. And I think that it's possible that the court and even a swish like Roberts might look back at kind of the way that this kind of discretion has really been abused 
in the interim since they originally offered their judgment and maybe shade this decision a little bit differently. And certainly I think that would be a win. I'm not pessimistic that will happen. I do think that we're more likely to get our biggest wins out of an energetic executive who is willing to push the maximum of his legal authority to um, to make things happen. But I'd sure love to have the Supreme Court uh, in our corner as well. I guess to wrap up, are we reaching a new immigration consensus? Because if we take the long view on this, I would say that the the period from HW, even let's include Reagan in this actually. So like Reagan through Trump, both Republican and Democratic administrations and the Republican and Democratic Party on this issue over time. I think that is sort of a definable era that starts to wobble with with Trump not only being elected, but elected on a platform that very directly addresses immigration in a way uh, that previous Republican candidates had not. Um, now we are entering an era where even blue states and cities are really feeling the effects of this crisis on our border. What are your hopes? I mean, are you optimistic that we are going to reach a new national consensus yeah. that but it's going to be so strong that it is going to sort of force, I mean, we were ultimately able to bully you know, Senate Republicans into mounting resistance to this bill. And certainly the House is declaring it dead on arrival. We're not going to get this bill as it as it is. Right. So right. that in that sense, even if it's a political loss in some ways and, and the, the Democrats get their jujitsu on this issue, um, it's still a win on the substance. So are we actually moving towards a consensus that is more in alignment with the views of the American people for the last 30 years? Well, I think that at least Biden has probably, as the Democrats frequently do, they've kind of turned the ratchet as far as it can turn right now. And the problem is I kind of tend to think it's a ratchet. So I wish I could say that we're going toward a consensus that we're really going to close the border in a more dramatic way than we've done over the last few decades. I'm not that optimistic about that. I do think that the Democrats have seen, OK, well, we've pushed this maybe a little further than we can push it. So they'll dial back some of their ridiculousness for now. I think one element that I just don't totally know how it's going to play out, but I am at least cautiously optimistic, is that I think the there's been a large element of immigration politics that totally understandably has intersected with race politics in the United States, where white voters have tended to be more skeptical and minority voters have tended to be more pro. What I think you're seeing now, though, and especially as the immigration changes from less being from Latin America, as I think we're going to see, um, is a situation where you're seeing down in South Texas a bunch of, in a basically Spanish-speaking, Hispanic culture, um, people pushing back quite aggressively against the border policies because, A, they're, you know, these illegals are coming in and competing with them for work. B, it's their communities. They're kind of having difficulty with this. And the ethnic political dimension of it is not as predominant as it was. And so I think potentially um, the fact that, say, Hispanics, who might tend to be more working class and therefore more tending to be hurt by this type of immigration, will no longer be a reliable constituency for this type of a policy, 
opens up some possible opportunities. I'm not saying that it will work that way. I could tell you a story that would be a different story that says, ah, oh, no, you know, people just want to keep adding to their own group and we're just going to keep going on and on. But I do think that you're seeing signs in places like South Texas and among other non-white communities that are increasingly skeptical of where immigration is today, that we might have an interesting multiracial anti-open borders coalition that could develop. And that would obviously be a very positive thing uh, on any number of vectors. So we'll just have to see how that plays out. And just one final question, Jeremy Carl, where can people order your book? What's the name of your book? Ah, and sure. where can Thank they you. find your work? So the book is called The Unprotected Class. Uh, and it is the story of how kind of anti-white discrimination and racism are, have risen in the United States over a period of several decades and particularly recently. Obviously a controversial topic, but I've uh, gotten some very kind uh, pre-publication words from folks like Tucker Carlson and Victor Davis Hanson and Heather McDonald and uh, the longest serving Republican member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. So uh, a number of, of good folks have found it. You can uh, pre-order it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or, or anywhere out there. Uh, it'll be out officially April 23rd. I'll be doing uh, some tours and talks around the area to uh, around the country to, to talk a little bit more about it. And you'll see me on more podcasts, et cetera, uh, as that kind of launch ramps up. Uh, and you can also, if you follow me on Twitter or X at Real Jeremy Carl, uh, I'll be talking a lot about it there and also on a soon to be launched Substack. So uh, I've been sucked into that world as well. So uh, thanks. And uh, hopefully we'll be back on at some point to talk about that book in a little more detail once we've launched in later April. Absolutely. We'll have you back on to talk about that book when it comes out and people can buy it, but you can pre-order it now. Um, and I think it's really going to be a controversial, but a very uh, necessary discussion. So Jeremy Carl, thanks for for coming on and explaining a lot of the, the politics of the border to us. Thanks so much, Inez. It's always a pleasure to be on. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a, a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.